1: Hi, welcome to New Books in Politics. I'm your host, Jeff Bloodworth. Uh, The 2012 election was really remarkable for almost the total lack of debate about foreign policy and national security issues. And so this week, uh, we're going to... try to counteract that and have a, a serious discussion about um, well, about national security and the politics of foreign policy. Uh, and, and in that vein, to do so, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld, and we're going to be discussing two of her uh, new books. And in addition to making us all feel very unproductive by having two books come out in, in the same year, uh, what Dr. Kleinfeld does in her books is, I believe she really uh, neatly uh, offers some policies and ideas that are going to address the national security issues of the 21st century. I mean, there's nothing new when I say that, you know, the the national security challenges of the 20th 20th century were all about big power rivalries. And the 21st century is obviously very different in that the national security security challenges facing the U.S. are all about failed states and non-state actors that often find safe haven in these failed states or developing countries that have uh, hit developmental snags. And so both of these books Offer really concrete and, and 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 seemingly to me doable policies that, addu- that 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 address these very central challenges of the 21st century. Now, the first book uh, that, that Rachel uh, has penned, "Advancing the Rule of Law Abroad: The Next Generation of Reform," and in this, what um, Dr. Kleinfeld discusses are some new ideas and policies that are all devoted to establishing the rule of law. In developing nations. And in and, and this, I think, you know, Dr. Kleinbaum makes a very good point, that the rule of law is just is the basis. This is what you need for um, developing countries to establish you know, uh, these kind of viable institutions to serve as the seedbed for economic growth. Now, the second book, which uh, Dr. Kleinfeld co wrote with Drew Sloan, is called Let There Be Light Electrifying the Developing World with Markets and Distributed Energy. And this is a really interesting book in that what, um, the, what the, the authors claim is that energy, or the lack thereof, is one of these major uh, drivers of insecurity. Um, in. In the developing world, in in other words, in a place like Afghanistan, why is there so little economic growth? Well, I think uh, what Dr. Kleinfeld has, has has you know neatly pointed out is you know it, it's the lack lack of energy, the lack of just basic electricity, you know. And 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 instead of seeing this as some sort of like immense challenge that um, Americans t- cannot tackle, this book is devoted to talking about the very kind of small and doable policy innovations that Americans and, and our allies that, that we can um, uh, unleash all across the developing world that will make the developing world um, a more secure area, uh, which will unleash economic growth, which will in turn make Americans uh, more secure and, and, and the global um, uh, security em- environment more stable. Anyway, we're going to be discussing these two books, um, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. Rachel Kleinfeld, welcome to uh, New Books and Politics. How are you doing?
0: I'm great. Great to be here. Thanks, Jeff.
1: Hey, no problem. Um, first, I mean, how we start out is we just have our guests uh, tell uh, a little bit about themselves, educational background, professional background, that sort of thing.
0: Sure. Um, so I was a Yale undergrad. I did my master's and my Ph.D. at Oxford, um, but I'm from Fairbanks, Alaska, and um, that's a pretty rural frontier town, and that's probably the, the place that's closest to my heart. And I now split my time between Washington, D.C., where I run the Truman National Security Project as president with Mike Breen, our executive director, and um, Colorado, which has beautiful mountains.
1: Do you want to tell us just a little bit about um, the Truman National Security Project?
0: Sure. Truman, we started it about eight years ago. We saw the country heading in really a bad direction in foreign policy, and a group of us thought, We need to build a new backbench of progressive leaders who care about national security, understand the stakes, and also understand the types of solutions that are needed for the 21st century. And from there, it's grown. So we're now really the hub for smart, progressive foreign policy um, and national security thinking for the best people in the next generation under 40 and um, good communications, messaging, and and policy ideas.
1: Great. Well, today we're going to be – and you're going to be making – Everybody out there feel in, incredibly unproductive because <laughs> we're going to be talking about two books instead of one. <laughs> uh, let there be. I thought I thought we could uh, start start with let there be light, um, and we're also going to be t- uh, also talking about advancing the rule uh, uh, the rule of law abroad. But we'll start with let there be light in an election season when we're talking about. Uh, foreign policy in very broad strokes. Your books are really sort of, you know, kind of the the infrastructure. You know, the 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 the, the policy nitty gritty. It seems to me of uh, of a the foreign policy of the 21st century. And so maybe you can explain uh, a little bit. Start talking about you know the basic thesis of uh, of let there be light. And you know, so so go ahead.
0: Sure. Actually, that's such an interesting idea. Let me um, telescope into it, okay? <laughs> because I think you're absolutely right that the um, the way I see the foreign policy of this century, we are for the first time as threatened by weak states as by strong states.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and we haven't really had that before since the Middle Ages. You know, in the Middle Ages we had yeah. highwaymen and and um, pirates mm. and all sorts of things like that. Well, we now have them again, and. You have these fragile states that host terrorist networks. You have fragile states that can host zoonotic diseases that move from animals to humans and can become pandemics. You have fragile states where extremism can fester of various sorts, where nuclear weapons can become lost um, and get into the wrong hands. So all of a sudden we have this new set of challenges in in weak states, and we're very good actually at dealing with strong states. We're good at dealing with Iran and North Korea and, um, and problematic states like that. But we are not very good at dealing with these fragile states. So both of these books deal with that set of problems. So while they look very different on the surface, they're actually um, they're actually similar in that way. So Let There Be Light starts with the premise that um, we get a lot of security challenges from the underdeveloped world, these fragile states, mm-hmm. and particularly from um, the energy resources that we choose to use. So um, our choice worldwide to fuel most of our cars with oil fuels oil states, Uh, Most of those oil states that survive on um, money from their oil means they don't collect many taxes from their people. That means they don't care much about their people's well-being. So You end up with very angry populaces in a lot of these oil states kept down by autocratic governments, and that's a recipe for terrorism. And, in fact, when you look at where does a lot of terrorism come from, it's from autocratic governments where people don't have voice. So oil, big problem. Yeah. Second big problem is climate disruption. And I know this is real controversial, but in a lot of places, this is not a question that they're still fighting. They're sure. just dealing with it because clearly the climate is changing, whether it's man-made or not man-made. You go to parts of Africa, you go to um, Bangladesh, and the sea levels are rising in Bangladesh, and they're forcing Bangladeshis into India. India has, in fact, built a big fence to block Bangladeshis and, and kills a number of Bangladeshis every, every year
2: mm-hmm. who
0: are trying to get over that fence. And um one of the areas where climate disruption is happening quite a lot happens to be on what's known as the Sudanese Sahel line, which is this line in Africa um that goes straight across the country through um Mali and Sudan and um that whole little line, Nigeria.
2: Mm-hmm. And if
0: you look at where are we having terrorist problems, where where is Al Qaeda starting to hide out in Africa, it's along that line. And it's mm-hmm. because that's also the line where Muslims and Christians um met, where the Arab movement toward Muslim, Muslimization of Africa stopped and the Christian animists from the South stayed. And um, so you have a lot of conflict that happens right along that line and climate disruption is exacerbating it. So it's not causing the conflict, but you have ranchers and herders who can't um, use the same resources and start fighting. And then that fight takes on a religious dimension because they also happen to be Muslim and Christian. And suddenly Al Qaeda enters the mix and says, Hey, if you really believe in your religion, here's another way to fight it, take it worldwide And then we have a problem. So I got into energy from that lens, that um, it causes national security problems because of our use of oil and because of of the climate disruption. And then I also care about human security because that's the name of the game in the 21st century is Hmm. human development and human flourishing. When you have people who aren't flourishing, they're not contributing to the world. You know, um, Steve Jobs' dad was from Syria. Yeah. And I, I always think about, gosh, you know, what if he had been born in
2: Syria? Yeah. I use
0: an Apple computer. I have, you know, iPhones. And would we never have had any of these things? Because this person wouldn't have been able to realize his own ability. And so the energy issue we look at through through all those lenses. And Drew Sloan, my my co-author, is a military veteran mm-hmm. um, who spent time in these places. And the two of us together said, okay, energy in the developing world is a problem for, for all these reasons. We want humans to flourish we want security for us. We don't want to feed an, um, oil states. What can we do about it? And we said, look, the way that we've tried to answer this problem through aid for 50 years, really, is big centralized generation. You know, yeah. what we have in America, you turn on a light and a light comes on and that comes on because there's a big power plant somewhere that might be fueled by coal or it might be fueled by natural gas or something. Um, and that allows you to have lights. And we tried to do that in the developing world and it kept failing. hmm And it's failed for a lot of reasons. Um, Largely, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of terrain issues. It's very costly to build that kind of centralized generation. If you have war or conflict, it's super easy to take down one part of a centralized system and have a blackout over a huge region. So a number of reasons why it's been hard. And we said, okay, let's look at distributed generation, which is solar panels and wind and um, renewable distributed generation. This is basically... You know, having energy sources that are close to your business or close to your home.
2: Yeah,
0: and then the book finally takes one more step and says, okay, if you actually want this stuff to spread, spread it through distributed, not through centralized systems. This is like personal computers rather than supercomputers. The supercomputer is a lot stronger and better and bigger, but you know what? If everyone has a personal computer, everyone has a cell phone, these small distributed systems actually can work. But how do you spread them in poor areas? And the last step we took is to say. You spread them through markets. A lot of aid has been focused on giving poor people light to read by so their kids can study by. It's a home-based system, so they give away a light bulb or something, and people take them into their homes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not sustainable because it's a giveaway charity model, and people appreciate it, but um, there's no market force that spreads it. whereas if you if you focus on business to business and use the energy to generate income, it moves from the debit side of the letter of the ledger. To creating money for people, and we saw this with the cell phone revolution.
2: Yeah. but it's yeah. very easy
0: to see with energy, right? You're a mm-hmm. barber; you have a light in your shop, so you can stay open a couple hours later. You get more customers. The other barber shops say, "My gosh, we better get a light, or else we're going to close early and lose customer sales." So they get a light. All of a sudden, you start getting a market because there's a, a build-on effect. Everyone's getting a little wealthier. That's you know how how markets work. And suddenly, you have light in the developing world that solves a lot of
1: these problems. Yeah, what what I found so interesting about "Let There Be Light" is, on one hand, you know, you have Romney and Obama talking about their kind of big ideas and I, you know, sort of their big visions for how they see the 21st century. And what both your books do is, I think, talk about how we can get there. And when when I when I read your book, I, you know, I'm a historian, and I, I immediately think of I thought, and especially when you were talking, I thought of this is sort of Bill Clinton's worldview, you know, in the foreign policy of the 1990s, talking about expanding markets and investing American hopes in sort of human dignity, and I mean, this goes all—nothing could be more American. This goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, you know, this belief that liberal free trade, unleashing the capacity of the individual, this this is this is the key to um, you know global stability and uh, some some sort of workable peace, and with this book does is says okay this is the big vision right and this is one small way that we can get there
2: Hmm. i
0: had not thought about it that way but you're absolutely (laughs) right and in fact the next book i want to write i'm going to new york next week to try to pitch it is about the big vision Hmm. and i think when i pitch it i will talk a little bit more about how you know these connecting dots because you know it's easy to have vision without a lot of substance yeah and it's also easy to focus on just these little things, which I think you, you, do me more credit than the books might do. You know, they, they focus on small problems and try to solve them um, or big problems, <laughs> and yeah. solve them. Um, but, but I want to build some of that connective tissue because I think you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah. I mean, which I assume this is your co-author, Drew Sloan with the, with the introduction where it begins with, you know, it, let there be light. I'm, I'm getting ready to read what I think is, a, and it, and it is a, a substantive policy book, but we start off, um, which I assume when he was a soldier looking at, uh, you know, a darkened, what he calls a 14th century seeming Afghan village. And, Mm -hmm. and, and, and seeing instead of, you know, this is a problem that needs to, well, it is a problem that needs to be dealt with, but seeing the human potential there and saying, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, they don't have energy. And, um, and, and so this book, just, I find this interesting talking about distributed generation and, I mean, you've talked a little bit about what decentralized uh, energy is, but I think talking about cell phones um, is, um, I don't know, it, it puts it in a, in a more understandable way because anyone who's been to the developing world, you're struck immediately by the how ubiquitous cell phones and cell phone stores are everywhere. And so it seems mm-hmm. to me that's kind of the model. Looking at cell phones, if, if we can get a cell phone in the hands of, you know, you know people in Africa or throughout the Middle East, why not some sort of, you know, uh, renewable energy source?
0: That's exactly right. And in fact, when we looked at the how-tos, we we did a lot of study of the cell phone market. We looked at other markets, too.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, we looked at a lot of businesses that have sold to the developing world, and some of them are very counterintuitive. For instance, um, a Pure Water Filter, which is one of those water filter companies like Brita, tried to sell clean water to the developing world. Mm-hmm. Total flop, complete failure. Hmm. Um, and so we investigate that case study to say yeah. you, know, you can't you can't take it for granted that people want your goods. You actually have to market them, even something <laughs> as obvious as energy. yeah People don't usually want energy. They want their cell phone to work. And yeah. that's, there's a little bit of a difference there, and if you're trying to market, that matters. So we looked a lot at cell phones because they were the success stories. We looked at a couple other success stories like um, – cement in Mexico for small houses and um, small packets of shampoo and so on for for India, and looked at how things were sold effectively in the developing world, and then we looked at some failures to figure out what what could
1: could go wrong. Yeah, and it's interesting because this is a very hard-headed and pragmatic sort of book. It's not, you know, you talk about the 1.5 billion humans who are energy poor, and then I think you make an excellent point that it's one of those that is obvious when someone's Smart points it out, that 1.5 billion poor people still have an enormous amount of purchasing power. Do, do you want mm-hmm. to talk about that, you know, kind of harnessing that sort of market force?
0: Absolutely. I think this is one of the, the biggest leaps that aid and um, charity and doing good for the poor has made is, and it's happened in my lifetime. I remember when I graduated from college and wanted to help the developing world somehow, mm-hmm. you know, everything was about Helping these poor victims, yeah. And how do you how do you give them something that they need? Well, the the big turnaround that happened in the last decade or two is starting to say, wait, these aren't victims; they're actually buying a lot of stuff. Yeah, they're a huge market. Mm-hmm. If you look at the numbers, then we compared it to the global um, makeup market, cosmetic market, and mm-hmm. the global um, soft drink market. Mm-hmm. The energy market is much bigger in the developing world alone in the global market for soft drinks. So if you think about hmm. how much does Coca-Cola and Pepsi spend to market its products to get them all over the world, energy is a much bigger market. It's also poor people are spending more per capita um, percentage-wise than rich people are. You know, it's like mm-hmm. um, the poor in America being forced to use laundromats rather than having laundry machines in their houses and yeah. they end up spending more money on their laundry. Same exact thing. And I remember when I was in India... Watching people, you know, burn a little bit of coal for a meal and then immediately extinguishing it, trying to save the last little bit, because they were spending so much money. But when you start looking at this as a market, suddenly, you know, it's worth it to market to to folks, and you design your products differently. There's a guy named Paul Polak who uh, worked for a group called IDE who came up with the idea of designing for the bottom billion, that you start with the Mm. price that people can pay, and then you design your product based on that price rather than taking a product and trying to cheapen the product to get to a price that people could pay. Hmm. And it creates really interesting design changes that um, we're now seeing everywhere from automobiles. Tata Mm -hmm. Automobiles has created this $2,000 car in in India, and it wasn't, let's take a Mercedes-Benz and strip it, it's, let's build a car, and it has to cost no more than 2000 And that led to engineering breakthroughs and all sorts of interesting um, breakthroughs that create a workable product at a cheap level.
1: Yeah, and um, to transition just a bit, I mean, I've, I did find this interesting when you were talking about India, and it brings to mind, um, you talk about indoor health pollution. And this is something that, again, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, I suppose that is a real problem. (laughs) Um, But uh, could you explain, like, why this matters and, you know, how it fits with your larger argument?
0: Absolutely. So this is a huge issue which people don't really notice. Um, We compare it in the book. We say, look, think about how much we're spending on malaria all around the world. We've Mm -hmm. even genetically designed a mosquito that can't carry malaria to try to kill out all the malarial-carrying mosquitoes. I mean, huge amount of effort. Mm -hmm. And – Indoor air pollution tends to kill about half as many people, again, as malaria per year. And how does it do that? It it does it in a couple of ways. One is just um, lung problems and respiratory problems, exacerbating asthma, um, causing people who are usually women. It's usually women who are cooking over Mm -hmm. small fires inside enclosed areas. They cough, they sneeze, they die at forty, <laughs> and that seems yeah. like a natural death. Yeah, but in fact, it's a death that was caused by lung disease, exacerbated by cooking over this fire for their entire lives.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, that's the main way it happens, and what that means is a number of things. First of all, losing moms in in that era of their life is horrible for their kids. Yeah, um, you get you lose your main person who's raising the children in a lot of these places. They're also often co-income producers, and so families slip further into poverty. Um, of course, you're also losing the human potential of these women.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, when you think about the labor-saving devices that have allowed women to work and yeah. contribute to society in bigger ways, of course, raising kids is a big way, but if these women were educated, they could raise their kids better. You know, There's so yeah. many ways that women could flourish, and the lack of energy is one of the things that really holds them back. So we look at that quite a lot.
1: Yeah, and and then I think um, it brings you to a a point and something I'd never heard of before. You talked about the Asian brown cloud. Could you talk about that just for a minute?
0: Sure. So this is another of these climate disruption pieces that is already happening. Um, In a lot of Asia, they're burning firewood or other um, materials that have a lot of particulates in them, and that's how they get their energy. Well, what that's caused is this, basically smog that's ar- ra- risen above the Asian subcontinent, so India, China, sometimes the, sub, um, the southern Asian continent. And you've got a layer of what's basically smog, this big brown cloud that hovers, and it moves a little bit, but mostly over that continent It's caused by all of the dung fires and wood fires and things that they're burning. Um, one thing that that's all causing is deforestation, which is a whole nother set of issues, but it can cause real conflict. Um, landslides, but also conflict between people um, and, and some horrible issues of, you know, women looking for firewood and getting raped on the way and things like that. The yeah. second thing it causes is this brown cloud. And that brown cloud is actually affecting the weather patterns because it's like having a big cloud over your over your continent. Yeah. And that's affecting the growth of plants and, and so on, which means farmers aren't getting as much money, which so you've got a whole um, depressive effect on the entire economy of Largely farming economies, hmm. um, because of what they're burning to to make energy, and it's not necessary. These places have a lot of wind; they have a lot of water for microhydro, you know, small dams yeah. and things. They have a lot of um, solar, obviously. Mm-hmm. India is quite a hot place, um, and so so is Bangladesh, and so on. So, um, so, it's not necessary, and it's it's causing
1: poverty. Okay, so you you've established the you know the 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 absolute need for you know. Um, talking about the, um, you know, energy poverty, you know, and sort of the, the, the health effects of energy poverty, the national security implications. And, and then, you know, we talk about, look, you can harness market forces so that you can scale um, distributed energy, okay? So, and again, this all sounds very optimistic and, 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 and quite doable. So I guess explain why, because it, it, it all sounds like such a great idea, why, why aren't we doing this already?
0: Um, well, I don't think it's because it can't be done. I remember I I had a professor at Oxford who was very dismissive of, of a commenter who said, oh, you know, if this, if this doesn't exist, then it probably can't be done. Hmm. she said, you know, we never had an ice cream shop in Oxford until two American Rhodes Scholars dropped out of their program and started an ice cream shop. <laughs> now we have an ice cream shop. So, you know, things can be done, and sometimes they're just not thought about right. Yeah, A lot of the work in distributed energy is about the business model mm-hmm. rather than the technology. Hmm. And a lot of what we say in the book is, look, People are treating this like it's a technological problem, but it's not. The technology is there. It can get better. It is getting better. It can get cheaper. It is getting cheaper. What you really have is a business model problem. You have to figure out how to sell goods to the developing world mm-hmm. in a way that works for different countries with different atmospheric conditions and, and different distribution chains and different ways of financing things. And you have to tackle those those business model problems one by one. And we lay out. I think we lay out about seven mm-hmm. issues financing, um, cultural issues, man and woman power, you know, are people educated, can they repair things, um, and so on and so forth, and basically go through each one of them and say, okay, here are some financing mechanisms that you can use. Here are some ways to affect regulations. A lot of times energy is a very regulated field, and Mm -hmm. you need to change the regulations so that um, you don't have one monopoly that's the only people allowed to sell energy. Um, Sometimes you need to change tariffs so that you're not you know doubling the price of a solar panel once it gets into your country um so we walk through each of these and we knock them down and none of those things are easy to change and that's why there's a lot of problems it's hard to come up with a good business model and some of the issues are quite political you know there's real power that gets lost when you lose a lot of centralized generation you know there's a lot of opportunities for corruption yeah big amount of money going into a project sure um there's a lot of opportunities for control a lot of of countries think of energy as something that lets them control their populace. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some, some cases that we cite of various dictators who turn on and off the lights as a way of rewarding various villages that they like and don't. So, so, you know, there's real issues with, with doing it, but they're surmountable. And they were surmounted with cell phones, the exact same set of issues by and large. And you can surmount them here. You just have to kind of start tackling them and, put your put your shoulder to the grindstone it's not glamorous it's not doable
1: yeah yeah it's not the sexy foreign policy topics that we often talk about but these are the seems to me these are the things that kind of really matter um and you know, so if i'm going to try to um kind of boil this down and make an argument to my you know 19 year old sophomores and the foreign policy topic that's that's on their mind you know this book starts in afghanistan right and they think about afghanistan you know how how can this make American missions you know in Amer- places like Afghanistan? What can this sort of you know five ten years down the road? How, how can this make a, a, a America successful in places like Afghanistan?
0: Sure. So um, there are a couple of things that hold back the developing world, and because these countries are fragile and unstable, they, they hold back the rest of the world. Um, they cause problems for the rest of the world, and they fail to contribute their human capital to the rest of the world. Um, if if America could build these energy systems in these countries or could assist them in building the energy systems – sorry, I misspoke. That's really the way to look at it. Can, yeah. can we assist these countries
2: yeah.
0: in building these systems? Um, the gains we get are things like countries with more education. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have lights on, they can – educate people they don't have to stop learning at 6 p.m. when the when it gets dark um a lot of people work all day in these countries including the children and um more educated populace does not necessarily lead to peace but it does tend to lead to very good things for women particularly Mm -hmm. educated women is one of the biggest predictors of um growth in the economy in part because they can then educate their children
2: yeah
0: um so lots of positive effects from that you have positive health effects a lot of the problems with um with diseases in these countries is that you can't get refrigeration to refrigerate pills and so on to get them to the points where they're needed. Hmm. So you can easily have distributed um, energy that lets you have little refrigerators that yeah. you carry around. Well, suddenly you don't have the kind of health worries that we're worried about. You know, a couple of years ago we were worried about pandemic flu and SARS and those worries are still there. Those, the chance for those kind of diseases we thought in 1918, it, it'll happen again. We've got a more, um, more people in the world. So that kind of thing will make a big difference in stability. And then last but far from least, you'll have more economic growth. It's mm-hmm. really hard to grow a business when you can't have any energy. Yeah. you see the losses from that, even in countries that do have energy where they have a lot of brownouts um, and blackouts because it's not a stable grid. Um, you know, there's only so much you can do with a treadle wheel sewing machine versus an electric sewing machine and yeah. that kind of thing. So you'll, you'll start seeing economic growth. Well, there's all sorts of positive correlations between economic growth and stability. Um, and the final thing I think you'll see is, frankly, more democracy, which is also positively correlated with stability, that you're taking money out of the hands of oil dictators. Um, you're reducing the ability of the Saudis to spread um, extremist literature and so on around the world because they're getting less money from oil, the less we're dependent on oil mm-hmm. for transportation. And a lot of these countries use use oil-fed diesel generators. So While our electricity isn't oil-based and a lot of the developing world is oil-based because of the diesel generators they're using, that's also good for the world. So democracy, development, education, particularly education for women, these are big forces that stabilize the world and make America more
1: safe too. I mean, the other half of this uh, is, of this walnut is your, your other book, <laughs> Advancing the Rule of Law Abroad. And if we could just transition to that, if you could just kind of begin to explain the role of, of the rule of law and its importance for you know, global stability first and how that kind of meets or intersects with American national security.
0: Sure. So, um, again, when I was in India, when I was first noticing these energy issues – Um, I came across some instances of police corruption and um, aid corruption that were just enormous. So, in one case, none of the aid money made it to a poor area that was supposed to get it. In another case, there was police brutality Mm -hmm. and corruption that was protecting, that was basically keeping down economic activity and, and helping a monopolist maintain a monopoly. And one of the things I realized was boy, so many people in the development field are trying to help bring these countries out of poverty. But as long as people are insecure, as long as they're fearful of lawlessness, as long yeah. as they worry that all their stuff is going to get taken away, it's going to be hard for them to, to build. And when they physically worry for their own safety, they're not going to be as productive, and they're certainly not going to flourish. Um, and if you look at human dignity and development and kind of the Amartya Sen manner of mm-hmm. um, you know, development as freedom, lack of security really takes away freedom, and so does corruption. And so I got interested in the rule of law set of issues. And what I realized pretty early on in studying this, the first piece I wrote in the rule of law field was a definition of the rule of law hmm. because I realized that people were using it like it was manna from heaven. It meant everything and nothing.
2: Yeah. You yeah. know, the
0: rule of law was about human rights. It was about law and order. It was about anti-corruption. It was about yeah. the efficient um functioning of the judicial system. It was about treating people equally under the law. And each of those is a little bit different actually. And you can have some and not have others. For instance, a lot of former communist countries had a lot of law and order
2: <laughs> and yeah.
0: very little you know, equality under the law, mm-hmm. very little human rights. Um, and then after 1989, that reversed. They had a lot less law and order, more freedom, and pe- that, that was mixed for people. Um, and so I realized that the rule of law was this really important issue and that very, very few people were studying it. It kind of fell through the cracks. Development aid people – didn't really like working with cops and they particularly didn't like working with corrupt or violent cops. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just not fun if if you're trying to save the world necessarily. <laughs> um, and our military in America was was ostensibly barred from doing this work, although there have been various workarounds, but since the seventies for human rights reasons, wasn't supposed to do it, um, except in certain carve outs. And um so so you had this area where it was not really foreign policy; it was seen as domestic. in fact, I wrote my dissertation on it mm-hmm. at Oxford, and I had to really argue that this was an international relations issue, really, because it didn't fit into their you know it wasn't country to country, yeah, yeah, it, it was this kind of sub country issue and hmm. the argument I made, which is the argument I make in the book, is, look, most of our foreign policy issues that are hardest for us to deal with now are um domestic issues in other countries that affect our security and safety
2: yeah. Yeah. So absolutely.
0: the rule of law is one of those. And the example I gave is, I think I start the book with it is that um when I was in Russia in nineteen ninety two, it was, the country was kind of falling apart. It just moved from the Soviet Union to Russia. And some mafiosos offered myself and my brother and some friends of ours a nuclear submarine. <laughs> to buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I you know, I was sixteen was, years old. I, I really didn't have the capital to buy a nuclear submarine, but <laughs> um I didn't also know if I wanted a nuclear submarine, although I had sort of Beatles dreams of taking <laughs> this as my way home. But um, but we didn't know if it was a real nuclear submarine or not. There's no way to tell. But it yeah. could have been. And one of the problems with the rule of law for our security is that you get corrupt border cops letting mm-hmm. in arms. You get um, corruption that can allow nuclear material to come out. We just saw um, basically a corrupt spy in Canada who was passing secrets to Russians these sorts of rule of law issues have real security ramifications in in a world where what other countries do internally affects our security here at home
1: yeah i found you know my my major um kind of international experience is i i work in a, a kind of what do you see a democracy in, initiative um sort of a a boot camp in jordan um every summer and the, the, so I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, a couple of months out of the year over there. And it seems to me Jordan is, you know, quite a bit like the rest of the developing world. Everyone just takes for granted that, you know, the police and every bu- government, almost every government bureaucrat is totally and utterly corrupt. And you know, this is, you know, what happened with the Arab Spring. And so it, it just, it's, it, again, it's like, just like let there be light. It's sort of like this obvious answer that's um, kind of staring us right in the face This is one of the big major problems that we don't even sort of address, it seems to me, um, in in our um, kind of national security debates at election time. And so what I found interesting about this is that, you know, your kind of inside-out approach, you know, to talking about the rule of law abroad. And maybe you could Mm -hmm. kind of talk about how you approach uh, promoting the the rule of law differently than, than other people who have written about this.
2: Sure.
0: So, um, and I think this is very influenced by the work that I do at Truman, which is, of course, very political. We're working with Congress. We're trying to change laws in the country. We're working with the administration. We're trying to affect how things are seen politically because that's how things get done. Um, When I looked at how we were approaching the rule of law in other countries, and the U.S., by the way, and other countries are spending billions of dollars a year trying to fix the rule of law in, in other nations. Yeah. In fact, at one point we were working in 183 countries,
2: mm-hmm. and there's
0: only 210 countries in the entire world. Yeah. So um, you know, this is a huge issue that the U.S. is working on. It's just not, as you were saying, it's not like an above-the-fold on the Washington Post front page yeah. kind of issue. Um, but we're spending a lot of money. We're doing a lot. And most of what we're doing is looking at, what would we do here at home? How does our system work? Let's import that over there. Yeah, And it doesn't work, and it hasn't worked. We've been doing it for, you could argue, we've been doing it since we started invading the Dominican Republic and saw on 100 years ago, but we've yeah. been doing it in this modern way for at least 40 years.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, and it doesn't work very well, and that's because the rule of law is an incredibly political area within a country. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at America. If we want to change the laws on... Um, please sensing you know or three strikes in your out rules go up for referendum in california um do we have the death penalty or not what um what counts as political corruption in our country these are big political issues mm-hmm. and also on a small level um people really lose power the rule of law is about choosing who has power in the society
2: yeah
0: <laughs> and mostly it's about taking power from powerful people and giving it to less powerful people
2: mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, that's real hard. I mean, that's equality under the law, but that's real hard. When we first had the concept of the rule of law in England, it was with the Magna Carta, and what it basically boiled down to was the lords, the rich feudal class, finally amassed enough power just through their money and the power that they got banding together to challenge the monarchy. And they started to bring about some rule of law, not for everybody, certainly sure. not for their serfs, but for themselves, and it's a power game. It's about who has power in the society how do they wield it and how do they get a little more for themselves? That's what the rule of law in my mind largely bo- boiled down to is this mm-hmm. agreement between the government and the people about how power is to be wielded in this society. Um, what's the relationship between the state and the society?
2: Mm-hmm. When
0: you look at it that way, it becomes incredibly domestic mm-hmm. and what another country can do is, um, is not nothing. Another country can do quite a lot, but only by working through that domestic system. So instead of looking at what should be done, you start looking at who wants to do it. Um, Who are your reformers in this country? What do they want? What do they benefit from? Um, Who gains and who loses from these rule of law changes that you might make? How can you amass the power to get the positive gains that you want? Who needs to come on board? How do you build coalitions? It's much more like advocacy and political work in our country or in any country and much less like a traditional aid project Hmm. where you're building a road or something. And a lot of our our, um, national security and foreign policy work needs to start walking this line, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. It's this line between traditional development approaches and traditional foreign policy approaches. Foreign policy approaches are diplomacy, right? You push on the government, you tell the government, do this. And if you push hard enough or you offer enough carrots as opposed to sticks, the government makes that decision. So when Ronald Reagan says, you know, tear down this wall, talking about the Berlin Wall,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: we didn't offer earth-moving equipment. We assumed that if the Soviet Union wanted to take down the Berlin Wall, they could do it. A development approach would have been to offer earth-moving equipment, right, Mm -hmm. and to ignore the politics of that.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, in most of these issues, we now need both approaches. Mm -hmm. We both need to pressure the government because this is about power, and we need to help them do it, whether that's – the earth moving equipment or offering police equipment or whatever, and it's offering the technical assistance of how do you build coalitions how do you organize to challenge power how do you um build up power among people who don't have it so it's a both and rather than an either or approach and and we're not good at those two pieces of our of our tool set working together
1: so it sounds like if let's just use a case study of Egypt you know today and, and you know um. The way you would go about this is sort of the traditional sort of hey the the aid package that goes to Egypt that's been you know been in place since Camp David, but then quite literally relying upon NGOs to send hundreds, maybe thousands of sort of um, uh, kind of development assistance people on the ground to literally work with Egyptians in organizing grassroots grassroots politics. Right. No. Is, is that that's what you're sort of about?
0: right, and it sounds real challenging when you say that, like, "Oh, we're going to go into other countries and organize their politics." But the key is, we're not doing it ourselves. What we're doing is um, is assisting local forces in those countries hmm. and yeah. teaching them. Yeah. And that's being done by a lot of people. You know, in Egypt, for instance, the Serbians after they threw off their dictator. They started a group that went and taught the Egyptians how to organize against their dictator. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is is already happening, sure. country to country. It's not that the United States is doing it. And in fact, our best rule of law programs are not usually the United States sending people. It's usually us sending people from other countries that have done it themselves
1: ah, to, okay. to teach
0: other people how to do it because. You know, no one really wants the U.S. to wag a finger at them and tell them how to do it. And also our system is pretty different yeah. than most systems. We're British-based. Most countries are French-based, in their legal systems
2: mm-hmm.
0: We're rich. Most countries aren't so rich. Yeah. So it can be much more helpful for Egypt to hear how Morocco did something or how mm-hmm. um, Albania did something than how we did something. And so a lot of our actual foreign policy work in this area is to bring bring people who have done changes successfully to these other countries to teach them, um, but you're right; it is mostly grassroots politics. And Egypt is a great example because, in fact, we had a rule of law program in Egypt for a long time, where we were helping do things like judicial case management—very um, typical, very technocratic
2: reforms—as
0: yeah. if um, as if the only problem with the Egyptian system had been that they didn't have computers. Or, or, <laughs> You know, yeah. they didn't have computers because somebody hadn't funded the courts to that degree. And yeah. someone hadn't funded the courts to that degree because someone wanted to maintain some power over the courts. And
2: mm. yeah.
0: You know, when you start looking at it that way, you realize, you, you know, you're nibbling at the edges of a problem that won't be solved until you you solve that power equation.
1: Hmm. So, um, you know, so what you're talking about is, you know, U.S. policymakers looking at um, advancing the rule of law abroad and looking at it both at at the very sort of elite kind of traditional diplomatic approaches coupled with bottom up you know funding of you know all sorts of grassroots organizations in whatever country you're talking about and mm-hmm. so let's just imagine what would this what do you think this like the arab spring what would you think um you know what's a an a realistic but optimal Um, outcome in the next 10 years what what would the rule of law look like in 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 Egypt let's just stay with that example sure
0: so I should I should caveat that it's really hard right now in the Arab Spring countries um particularly in Egypt for instance they've told us we don't want your aid and we don't want your NGOs sure you know so there's going to be a period of not wanting America to interfere and maybe not wanting other countries to interfere sure um that's pretty understandable given what effect we've had on their politics up until now. Um, eventually, hopefully, we can work with them either directly or through um, international groups or through international NGOs so that it's not you know, stamped made in America. Mm-hmm. And what it would look like is probably more like Italy. Hmm. You know, Italy is not great on rule of law scales. If you yeah. look, in fact, um, there was a study that came out. I'm not going to quote the number because I can't remember it, but a large percentage of their um, GDP seems to be coming from illicit and mafia activities.
2: Yeah.
0: But you know, they're basically a fair country. Yeah. People can get a fair shake. Business can function in Italy. You aren't worried about having things. You know, um, you, you aren't worried for your life when you walk around Italy. They've got a tourism industry. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of petty theft. There's a lot of corruption. There's a but it's it's at a more manageable level. Sure. And the idea that you could get those um, a lot of the countries in the Middle East to a level like Italy. Hmm. Is quite doable. Yeah, that that is not a stretch. Um, and then you know you would like Italy to be a little bit more like Norway, and you know some of these things you sort of work on bit by bit. And some might be impossible. You know, I believe cultural factors play a role. Sure. Um, and some some countries like a little less rule of law. Yeah. And and by that I mean um, if you can. If you can speed things up, some people are okay with corruption. One of the, (laughs) one of the really interesting stories that, that I tell in the book is that in Albania, where I did a lot of work, everybody was talking about corruption. Every, all the politicians, oh, this is horrible. We have so much corruption. This is bad. All the international NGOs, um, all the countries around the world that were trying to help Albania were all saying, you know, corruption is a huge problem here. But somebody was smart enough to do a test and say, well, what do you think is corruption? And they gave two examples. They said, if a flower seller raises their prices right before a big holiday, <laughs> is that corruption and, and is that justified um, or should that person be punished? And if a if a um, student gives a bribe to a teacher for a better grade, is that corruption or should that be punished? And two-thirds of the people said the flower seller was corrupt and should huh. be punished. And two-thirds said that the student wasn't corrupt and that it was justified if it was corrupt. Yeah. Um, and neither in the teacher, too. And so you do get these cultural differences where certain things matter more to people. And, and you need to think about that for the rule of law. So not everyone's going to be Norway or the United States. But if we could get more countries to be Italy, we'd be in a much better world.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, well, we've taken a lot of your time up. And, you know, obviously you're busy. You're writing – finished two books and about to start on a third. Um, so, say, and so maybe this is the general last question that we have. Just you want to talk very quickly about your next project?
0: Um, sure. Thank you. I, I have not um, gotten to talk to anyone about it. so This is the a first a first time, but I really think that the nature of foreign policy has changed, and the nature of national security challenges have changed in the twenty-first century, where we now have nation states, and we have weak states, and we have individual actors whether that's businesses or really just individual people or what's basically an NGO like al-Qaeda. I mean,
2: that's
0: basically an NGO-based organization that yeah. just didn't bother to incorporate. Um, and so you now have a lot more actors. That's not new. Everybody's talking about that. Um, but it means that we need a lot more tools to bear on these problems, and the U.S. government is still structured from the 1950s. If you look at the basic, one of the reasons that the Truman Project is called the Truman Project is that Terry Truman, in the 1940s, with the last person to innovate all of our security apparatuses, so yeah. the CIA, the Defense Department, um, the United Nations, NATO. All that was created in the late 1940s. Well, we have had a revolution in how we organize people in the business world. Um, we've had a revolution in how we organize people online and these tools that we can now use to work across borders and, and so on. The U.S. government is one of the few places where that innovation hasn't taken place, particularly in the security field, in part because of security issues about how you share information and clearances and so on. So I really want to write about what would be possible to do and what would organizing our government and, our, and not just government, what would organizing our country, because I think a lot of it is going to be done by businesses and NGOs, not just the government, um, how would we organize that to do good foreign policy in the 21st century?
1: Wow. So this is a, um, again kind of a government reorganization for the twenty first century. It sounds sounds like a, a, a similar similar sort of book, you know, a book that straddles that it's pointed more towards policy intellectuals, but is also accessible uh, for the informed public. And I, I hope I, so. Yeah. No. 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 I mean, these are both uh, very readable, interesting books, um, and you know, heavy on policy, but but you know, quite quite accessible, which is not an easy thing to do. So um, you know, thank you for joining us. I urge everyone to go out and to visit Amazon um, or your nearest, your favorite uh, online bookseller and pick up one or both of uh, Rachel Kleinfeld's new books. Thank you so much, Jeff. Yeah. This has been really fun. Thanks, Rachel. I'll Great talk time. to you later. Okay. Bye. I hope you enjoyed um, my conversation with dr. Rachel kleinfeld and um, hearing more about her books advancing the rule of law abroad and let there be light I want to urge uh, all the listeners to uh, go out uh, on the internet and uh, and purchase these books or to urge your local library to uh, to stock them so you and others can read them uh, I will look forward to uh, you know seeing you next week bye